I want you to hear our scripture this morning taken from Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the, author- for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them. <clears throat> Taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. We are going to pray this morning in unison, um, praying for our country, praying for those in authority. And so let us pray together. <clears throat> God of justice and compassion, God of Republicans and Democrats and independents, God of the poor and the 1% and the middle class, in the heat of this election year, we pray for our nation, our churches, and ourselves. In the midst of meanness and deception, May our words be kind and true. In the midst of loud speeches and harsh accusations, may we listen well and try to understand. May those who follow Jesus do the work of Jesus, breaking down the dividing walls, speaking the truth in love, meeting together in the face of disagreements, Holy, loving God, have mercy on your children. Amen. Well, this marks a, um, a transition in how I am preaching. And that transition has come a number of different times over the last several months. I have preached in the chapel to no one. I have preached in the sanctuary to no one. I have preached at home to really no one. And uh, I have preached outside to folks. I am now preaching back inside uh, the sanctuary with a mask on. And so uh, this has been kind of um, just another one of those things that has happened that we've kind of rolled with. And um, so I'm thankful that uh, we're preaching and, and worshiping together with folks in the sanctuary. It has been a long time. And um, I know maybe some of you have kind of snuck back in here and maybe looked around at the sanctuary over the last couple of months. I won't tell anyone. That's fine. Um, but for some of you, maybe this is the first time that you've been in back in this building for quite some time and back in the sanctuary 
for quite some time. And, and so I recognize this is kind of a, a different experience for all of us. Last week, we introduced uh, what we're going to spend the next couple of weeks looking at, talking about, um, talking about how our faith, our following Jesus, impacts the way we interact with uh, the politics and, and the system of government that surround us. Last week, we talked about how the church is called to embody a different kind of politics or, or way of organizing as a new society called the kingdom of God. We also talked about how at times the church is guilty of idolatry, that is, putting our hope and our trust in something other than Jesus, whether that's in a particular politician, whether that's in a particular uh, stance or, or policy or a, a party. We've often allowed ourselves and the good news to get co-opted by kings, by presidents, or rulers of this world. This morning, we're going to be taking a look at the role of the nation-state, the role of government in our world. Um, and next week, we're going to be kind of uh, contrasting that with how the church is called to live and act. And so as we take a look at this this morning, would you pray with me? Jesus, may the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Would you continue to call your church back to its first love, which is Jesus Christ? We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, to talk about how government works, to talk about this, these systems around us, and when I talk about nation-states governments, I'm talking in, in generalities. I'm not talking specifically about the United States, although the United States is a nation-state, and so uh, it's lumped into this as well. But to talk about the role that uh, government and nation-states play, we have to kind of go back to the beginning of Scripture. At creation, humanity is called to serve as kind of co-governors, co-rulers with God. Humanity is given the job to have dominion over creation in order to continue God's work of creative order bringing. And so, for instance, um, the human one, Adam, is given the task of naming the animals. It's no longer just pointing, you know, at chaos and trying to distinguish animals just by grunts or groans or something. He actually names them. It's a way of classifying things and, and bringing further order to creation. This is part of the task that is given to humanity at the very beginning. It's also part of the task that we see in the book of Revelation that is our task for eternity with God. And we're going to get there at some point. But in the meantime, humanity has turned from God. And dominion, which isn't, you know, dominion is the place uh, of God's rule. It's, it's the place where we are, are called to be uh, co-creators uh, with God. Dominion became dominate. 
and we choose to seek power and control over others. Over time, we have the forming of societies and groups. Uh, Humans band together for preservation, for assistance, to, to work with one another. They have shared meaning. They have shared stories and shared culture. Societies need a way to structure. This is part of the order making to which humanity was initially called to. And yet, in our brokenness, our nature is to dominate. And the powerful begin to take control. Kings, emperors, pharaohs, Caesars are born. And in the midst of all of these kingdoms seeking to dominate and take control, God chooses in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, to begin to form an alternative society in ancient Israel. God sets these people apart. God is their lawgiver. We often recognize Moses as the lawgiver. Moses brings them down from the mountain. He smashes them when he gets upset. He has to do the whole thing over again. But it's ultimately God who gives the law. God is also the king. Israel is initially a theocracy. Uh, It is a place ruled and governed by God. It was not God's will for Israel to have a king. In fact, when they start to uh, demand a king, God warns that it will lead to coercion and manipulation. He warns them that this is not going to turn out the way you want it to go. He warns that their, their sons are going to be called off to, to fight the king's wars. They are going to die, that, that things are going to happen to their families. They're going to be manipulated. God warns them. Even among a nation that God has actually chosen, they're prone to coercion, violence, manipulation, Imagine what happens to countries that are not actually chosen by God. But Israel demands to be like everyone else. It's a good reminder that just because everybody else is doing it doesn't make it a great idea. And so Israel gets their king. And sure enough, it doesn't end well. Israel fails to be the alternative society that they were meant to be. And yet, we do see throughout Scripture that cities, nation-states, empires do serve a function within God's ordering. God does occasionally seem to work through these nation-states. One example of how we see God working through uh, a country, through an empire, uh, and in particular an empire that we normally don't have positive connotations for, is the story of Joseph. You know, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. That's the, the musical version. But in the story of Joseph, he is uh, sold into slavery by his brothers. He ends up in Egypt. He rises to second in command over all Egypt. And if you remember this story, Pharaoh has... Uh, a couple of dreams, and he's searching for someone to interpret the dreams. Joseph is able to interpret the dreams. He says, the interpretation means that there are going to be seven good, plentiful, 
uh, bountiful years of harvest. And then is going to come seven years of famine. Because of Joseph's insight, Pharaoh places him in charge. And Joseph launches a system of big government with high taxes for seven years. And the big government with the high taxes ultimately comes to the rescue. When Jacob's family becomes overwhelmed by the famine, they, become, uh, they come for public welfare from the government, and it saves them. And yet years later, that big government enslaves the people to the system. And God has to come and rescue the people again who have been made slaves. We see God on different different chances, uh, different uh, events in the Old Testament use Assyria, Babylon, Persia. Each at times is talked about as God's servant for bringing judgment against Israel and Judah. And yet in turn, these nation states also receive judgment for their violence, for their wickedness, for the way that they are not living in a in a. Uh, God-honoring way. We see instances of God using uh, Cyrus, the great, who returns the people to Jerusalem. In fact, uh, Cyrus is the one person in the Old Testament who is called the anointed one at different places. I want you to hear these words from Ezra chapter 1. It says, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia, so that he sent a herald throughout all his kingdom, and also in a written edict declared, thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of those among you who are of his people, may their God be with them, are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let all survivors in whatever place they reside be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods and with animals besides free will offerings for the house of of God in Jerusalem. According to these words, Cyrus is being chosen by God to send the people, the exiled people, back to Jerusalem, back to rebuild the temple for God. That's what they begin to do. It's interesting that historically speaking, we know that Cyrus made this similar edict to lots of different exiled people and religions. He would declare that uh, in, in a number of different contexts. He would send people back and say, I was told by your God to build a temple or to send you back. It was his way of um, allowing religious liberty in ancient Persia. Cyrus used this as a way of currying favor often setting himself in a a positive light. 
And yet we see how God appears to selectively use nation states. Never are they chosen the way ancient Israel was. Never does God condone or endorse the violence, the evil, the coercion of these nation states. And yet God does work good out of those situations. And so as we look at Romans 13, Paul does not live under a kind, benevolent ruler. Remember that ultimately Paul is executed by the state. He is a victim, uh, probably under Nero. He's executed. And so when he uh, talks here about honoring the authority and and talking about how um, authority, the government can be used to, to punish evil, and if you are doing good things that you have nothing to fear, set that in the context of Paul's life. Romans is written during the Pax Romana. It was a a time of uh, relative peace in the Roman Empire, a peace achieved through force and violence. But even during this time, it does allow for a relatively easy travel and communication across the Roman Empire, which aids in the spread of the gospel. It helps Paul make his missionary journeys. He can, he can travel. He can, he's got good roads. He's got good shipping lanes to, to go and spread the good news because of this forced peace. It's times where God is, is using the situation for good. You know, Romans, the book of Romans, is often seen as a great theological work. It has some uh, very deep theology from Paul. But it also contains some of Paul's most political writings as well. And again, when I say politics, I mean how people are supposed to structure as a group. It's political in that it addresses how the church is called to live and act as a result of what Jesus has done. So in Romans 13, when Paul says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, what Paul is encouraging the church there, because right before in Romans 12, and we're going to really dive into Romans 12 a lot more next week, but Romans 12 begins with, uh, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. Paul is calling the church out as people who are called to live and act differently in the world. And yet what Paul doesn't want is a new uh, revolt. He doesn't want a movement of zealots, uh, which had happened in the Jewish faith. The zealots were people that were uh, about armed uh, conflict with the Romans, trying to... uh, rise up in revolt. They were known as, uh, there were dagger men who would walk around Jerusalem and try and sneak up behind Roman soldiers and and stab them with their hidden knives and, and swords to cause chaos, to cause armed revolt. That's not the way the kingdom of God is going to operate. So Paul is encouraging the church in a very different direction. He 
says that those in authority have been ordered by God. He knows about them. God knows about them. They're not a surprise to God. It's not the same as God's endorsement. Because God certainly does not endorse Nero's killing of Paul. God certainly does not endorse uh, Domitian's persecution of Christians. God does not endorse Hitler's extermination of millions or any other evil or violent act perpetrated by any nation state, no matter how benevolent the guise. It seems these authorities serve one primary role. Bonhoeffer said government serves a preservative function. Nation states are supposed to hold back and punish evil. They're supposed to keep chaos from overtaking society. And for that purpose, nation states sometimes bear the sword. We'll come back to that next week when we back up to Romans 12 and what the church is called to. But nation states, earthly government, in the best case scenarios, are making the best out of a bad situation. And the bad situation is that not everyone has submitted, has given their life to the lordship and the kingship of Jesus Christ. And so in the meantime, nation states hold back the chaos what they're supposed to do. This is what Romans 13 says. How did Paul and more, how did Jesus live it out? Well, Paul doesn't stop with the Jesus stuff when the authorities demand that he stop. Remember, he's told in a couple of cities to to knock it off, stop preaching. He spends the night in, in, in jail. And when he's freed, By God, in a miraculous way, he still submits himself to the jailer. He he doesn't run away with everyone else. He, He stops, he stays behind, and he preaches the good news to the jailer, to his whole family. Paul uses his Roman citizenship to further the spread of the gospel. Yet Paul is executed by Rome. So apparently the nations do on occasion bear the sword for some other than evil things, too. Jesus is also executed by the Roman state, even though Pilate finds him not guilty. Remember, Pilate questions him, says, I find no fault with him. He hasn't done anything wrong. And yet, in order to keep the peace, in order to kind of well, any potential uprising, he executes Jesus. Yet Paul calls the church, do not conform. Paul's words about submitting, or, or rather subordinate yourselves to the authorities, come in the context of not being conformed to the pattern of this world. But Paul, and certainly God, does not envision open, violent revolt. Paul is not looking for armed zealots to bring about the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God looks like the king. Jesus places himself 
under Pilate's authority. Paul subordinates himself to Rome's authority, even when he has opportunities to escape. The early church martyrs placed themselves under Rome's authority. They refused the tools of the state, and they were willing to pay for their convictions. Nation states preserve society from utter chaos. They're called to punish evil and limit violence in society, to attempt to maintain order, to try to keep the peace. But the church is called to creative ordering of a new society, called to be peacemakers. We're called to uh, the ministry of reconciliation, not just uh, this uh, tense peace between people where we're not actively fighting one another, but called to be reconciling people to God and to one another. We're called to seek peace and pursue it. Ultimately, we cannot have a Christian nation state. Nation states cannot confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. They cannot afford to lay down their lives. They are interested in self-preservation. God may still work good out of the situations that nation states cause. But God is not in the business of blessing or ordaining the actions of nation states today. Nation states, empires, they all come and go. God has ordered them. He knows them. One of the resources I was looking at this week, uh, talking about Romans 13, said God's a little bit like a, a librarian when it comes to nation states. He, he orders them. He knows where they're at on the shelf. He, can, he, he knows where to go. And yet when a librarian puts a book on the shelf, that's not the librarian's endorsement of the content of the book. They order them. They know where they're at. They know where those tools and resources are. But it doesn't mean that God agrees or endorses the contents. We're going to Take a moment this morning because one of the things the church is called to do as pertains to the government, to the authorities around us, is to pray for those in authority. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 says this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. For kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. So this morning we are going to pray for those in authority. I'm going to ask us to enter into a time of prayer. I'm going to just go over a list of folks who would be included in that and maybe others that you will include in your own prayers. And at the conclusion of our praying for the authorities, we are going to have a time of meditation. Heavenly Father, 
You know all things. You have ordered this world. And nothing is a surprise to you. You have called us as your church to pray for those who are in authority over us. So this morning we pray for local authorities, for school superintendents, school boards, township supervisors, and others. We pray for state officials, for the governor and his administration, for our state legislature. We pray for our national leaders, for the president and administration, for the House of Representatives and Senate, for judges and courts. We ask for a glimpse of your perfect justice. We pray for others who are in authority. In our denomination, we pray for our district and denominational leaders, for Pete Contra, our district board and our district staff, for Paul Mundy, our denominational moderator, and our leadership at the denominational level. For our congregation, we lift up to you our church council, our church board and ministry teams, and our deacons as well. We lift up to you those in authority in other areas of our lives, employers, supervisors, teachers, and principals. Holy Spirit, in this next time of meditation, we ask that you would hear our own prayers, our longings, our worries, our joys, our excitements. Hear these 
May they rise as a pleasing offering to you. Next week, we'll be looking uh, more at a contrast between Paul's words on nation states and Paul's words of instructions to the church that surround this passage in Romans 13. Another similar passage that we don't have time for this morning, and so I'll encourage you to go home and look this up, is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. It's very similar to Romans 13. It is surrounded by language of being strangers and aliens, and then placing ourselves under the authorities. Peter calls us to silence people who think we're out to cause problems. The New Testament writers had no access to power of nation states. And the church is called to be, to embody an alternative society, breaking in peacefully in the way of the lamb like a mustard seed into the shell of the old. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord go with you and give you peace. Have a great week, Spring Creek.